Find 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to continue what we started last week. I appreciate the lively discussion last week. Uh, very difficult passage in some ways to cover. Living above reproach. We're going to uh, go down through verse 12. So a very small pericope or unit of Scripture tonight. Very small. Verses 9 to 12. Got it? Of course, next week is, is probably one of the best known passages in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep. So that'll be next week. But today, uh, let's read verses... Let's, let's back up to verse 1. Like I say, we covered verse 1 to verse 8 last week. But since we're continuing that same theme of living above reproach, let's back up and read the whole text again because it is a unit. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and please God, as in fact you are doing, you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we've already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever rejects this rejects not human authority, but God, who also gives His Holy Spirit to you. And now we'll pick up tonight. Now concerning love of the brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, beloved, to do so more and more. To aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now this whole section of 1 Thessalonians is about living the Christian life. Folks, the Christian life is not simply a Sunday morning meditation. We're going to live the Christian life. James reminds us that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only who deceive ourselves. John in 1 John tells us that if we say that we know him and yet we walk in the darkness, we don't know him. If we continually walk in the darkness, 
if we continually despise those who are who are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We may say that we know Him, but we don't. And so Paul is emphasizing here what other New Testament writers point out as well, that there's more to the Christian life than just our meditation. Uh, we are to put our faith into practice. Yes, Christian life does involve contemplation. It involves our confession of faith. It includes mental assent about the essential doctrines of the faith. All of that is true. But all of these things have to touch the heart and the hands if they're real. Your life has to be transformed. Jesus said we've got to be born again. Born from above. Born of the Spirit. Paul said if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are gone. Behold, all things have become new. It would be hard to imagine a case where somebody is born again and yet there's no life change of any sort. That'd be an oxymoron. Uh, and so here in chapter 4, Paul gives some very practical, continues to give, I should say, some very practical directives for the Christian life. Now, I mentioned last week he covers four main topics in this section. He talks about moral purity. He talks about love. He talks about work. He talks about the future. You don't get much more down to earth than those topics, right? Moral purity, love, work, and the future. That's about as practical as it gets. Now, we're going to move on tonight and uh, cover about love and work. Okay? And we're going to continue to see in this section of Scripture that our life says volumes about our theology. Theology is to drive life, but also life bears witness of what your theology is. First thing I want you to see tonight is Paul directs us, directs them and us to abound in love. He says, now concerning love of the brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, beloved, to do so more and more. Folks, we know this is a topic that fills the pages of the New Testament. Love. You've read about it. You've heard about it often. You may have heard about it so much when you hear about it again, you assume you can kind of check out. Hey, I, I know all this, right? Don't need to listen. I, I know all this. I've read all these passages about love. Maybe you practice a little bit of selective hearing when you come to topics like this that are so well known, right? Connie says men, she means me in particular, can have selective hearing, you know. Uh, when we, Kathy says that to you too, okay. Well, you know, messages like this, you might practice selective hearing. Yeah, I know what you're going to say next. And, and I can just kind of sleep until he gets to the next point, right? But don't do that. Uh, notice that Paul says that we're not only to love, but we are to excel in it. We are to abound in it. 
more and more. You know, there's a lot of things in life we excel at, hopefully. But in the church, love of the brethren is something that's an area that we are all to truly excel in. In fact, remember, Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, after his public ministry was over and he was just gathered with his disciples in the upper room, this is one of the subjects he hammered on with them. That their attitude to one another, their love for one another, would be one thing that would be a testimony to the world that they were genuine in their faith. And Paul goes on to say here, you're taught by God to love. And we are. We're taught, for instance, in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. It's part of His nature. Now, we don't want to narrow everything about God down to this. You know, theologians talk about the unity of God uh, or the simplicity of God. Uh, what they mean by that is we're to look at all of the attributes of God together and not just narrow God's character down to one. Because there are plenty of people today that want to say, oh yeah, God is love. And they forget about the fact that He's also holy. We need, we, need to, we need to look at all the attributes of God. But because Paul's on the subject of love, he wants us to understand God's the very standard of love. He's the very standard of agape love. Self-giving, self-sacrificing type love. What did He do? He sent His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So God is love. And as I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus taught it in John 13. And then in John 14 and 16, Jesus went on to say that He was going to send His Holy Spirit to be with us and to continue to teach us. Uh, God's Word teaches it. 1 John chapters 2 and 3 speaks about how we're to love one another and, and our love is to be more than just words, but we're to love one another with tangible deeds. And John says in 1 John that if we don't love the brethren, we continue to abide in darkness. John's pretty blunt about it. If we don't love the brethren, then we don't know God. Regardless of how many professions of faith we've made in our life, you know, you make a profession of faith every Sunday. But, again, your life would betray your profession. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, reminds us that without love, all the gifts of the Spirit wouldn't really mean anything. Paul says, I'd just be a, a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. I, I wouldn't accomplish anything. I could do great feats of the faith. But it wouldn't mean anything. And he goes on to say, love is patient, love is kind, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not easily provoked. He lists all those things of what love looks like in action. We also see in the book of Acts how the early church modeled it 
Because in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, what do we see about the early assembly of Christians? They would, they would, as they learned about needs, they would even go so far as to sell something they had to be able to have the resources to help somebody in the church. It was voluntary. It wasn't compulsory. Uh, you know, communists love to use those chapters in the early chapters of Acts for a forced giving. It wasn't forced, it was voluntary. But they did it out of their heart. Anytime one of them was in need, they pulled their resource together. They took care of that need. They modeled love. Uh, Paul had said of the Thessalonians back in chapter 1 that he saw in them a labor of love. Their labor in the Lord was prompted by their love for Christ. And so again, what is he telling them here? He's telling them this is something you already do and you know to do. But do it all the more. Abound in it excel in it. We need more love in the church, not less. And then a second thing he directs them to do here is to lead an industrious life. He says in verse 11, verses 11 and 12, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now he begins here with commands. And what is the command? Live a quiet life, right? Now I told you last week we, we kind of took a deeper dive into Thessalonica and how it was such a city of immorality. There was a party atmosphere there. You know, some people in the world today, all they want to do is have a party, go to a party, have a good time, right? That's, that's what they're after. And what's the Bible telling us to do? You, you read here and you read in the pastoral letters. You know what the pastoral letters are, right? First and Second Timothy and Titus. You read in those letters, particularly First Timothy. And, and what's the Bible saying? That we need to live a quiet and industrious life. Uh, stay home a little bit more. Seriously. Paul talks about Ladies there in First Timothy. Some of them going house to house and busybodies and all. They need to stay home. They need to raise their children. Uh, they need to be an example in that. They need to work on their relationship with the Lord and their relationship with their family. Paul over in uh, Romans chapter 13. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13. He says, besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first became believers. 
The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let us lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Powerful words, right? So Paul is saying here consistently across the board, stay home, work on your faith, work on your family, be industrious, be responsible. You know, families today need to hear that, don't they? Everybody's on the run so much. Everybody. Got the kids involved in on this team and that team, this dance squad, that dance squad, this club, that club. We're being clubbed to death, right? There's no time to work on your relationship with the Lord. Everybody's running, 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 running. He, he says, make it an ambition to live more of a quiet life. More of an industrious life. And as part of this, he says, to mind your own affairs. You know, when people have too much free time or when they're idle, what do they start doing? Making everybody else's business their business. They become busybodies. Those who are not industrious, not productive, uh, they use the time up in gossip and meddling in other people's affairs. He says, lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Don't be one of those Christians who's going around trying to find out the goods on everybody. Uh, also think about the what about him syndrome. You remember Simon Peter with the Apostle John? The end of John's Gospel? <laughs> What Simon Peter, when the Lord restored him, what Simon Peter immediately wanted to know? Lord, what about him? What do you want him to do? And Jesus basically said, Peter, what is that to you? I've got a plan with him. You don't need to worry about that. You worry about my plan with you and being obedient to what I've called you to do. Busy bodies need to commit their lives to the Lord. They don't have enough to do. They need to serve the Lord. I, I've always noticed something in, in church. I think it's a universal rule across churches. Anytime you find a busybody in the church or anywhere pretty much, you can probably notice that they don't really do anything in the church. They're not rolling up their sleeves and being a part of the team of working and serving. They're just sitting back and talking about what everybody else is doing. Have you ever noticed that? Seriously, I've noticed that. You can just about write it down in concrete. You find a busybody in the church and then you dive into where they're serving in the church and you'll find they're not serving in the church. They're a pew sitter. And they're just gossiping. They're busybodies. Folks, the Bible 
gives a high opinion of work and of service. In fact, God works. He worked in creation. He continues to work. Jesus said in John chapter 5, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Adam and Eve, when they were put in the garden, what were they to do? Tend the garden. They're to work. Work is noble. We were created to work. Yes, work has been affected by the fall. God said to Adam in Genesis 3, now your labor is going to be by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be difficult now. But he was to work. Adam and Eve were created to work. Uh, when Paul says here, mind your own affairs, work with your own hands, he's, he's not condemning all forms of work except manual labor. He's not saying white collar work, bad, boo. Blue collar work, yay, good. Now that was pretty much the ancient culture. Most people did learn some type of trade. Kind of sad today that we're not teaching our young people trades anymore, right? You listen to what's going on in the business world, they're begging for people who have knowledge of the trades. Most people in ancient times worked in some kind of trade. But, but again, Paul's not just elevating that and discounting more of what we would call white collar. His, his emphasis is rather, earn your keep. Whatever type of job you have, have a job and earn your keep. Be productive. Be productive in society. Be productive in the church. Be productive in your community. Adorn the gospel. You know, the Greeks hated work. For them, the ancient Greeks, for them, the good life was to own slaves. And now, some of the slaves in ancient times weren't like slavery like we think of today. People would even sell themselves into slave, slavery to pay off debt or something. Uh, and sometimes slaves weren't terribly mistreated. We have, we have just kind of one image of slaves. But slavery was predominant in the ancient world. And a lot of, a lot of people in slavery Tons of slaves in the Roman Empire. I forget now how many millions upon millions of slaves there were in the first century in the Roman Empire. Greeks thought, I need to have a slave who can be my household manager. And then if they were wealthy enough, they would have a slave who was educated who could be the educator for their children. But the Greeks thought, if I can have all these slaves doing everything, then what will I do? I'll be freed up to party. I have free time to live it up. I won't, I won't have stuff to do. I'll have leisure time. And then what they do with their leisure time? They got involved in bad stuff. 
Again, work is created by God. It's a good thing. And it's important to find the work that you're gifted for. But it's, it's one of the areas where you can serve God. You don't just serve God in the church. You serve God through your employment, what you do. You should look at your work that way. You're serving of God in that place where you work. You know, there's a big concern in America right now. I don't, I don't understand how people are paying their bills, but they say working age men between ages 18 and 64 for no, no explainable reason, there are 7 million men who are just laying out of the job market. How in the world are people paying their bills? Would you tell me that? Seven million who are, who are just laying out of the job market right now. It's a big problem. In California, I read some years ago, and I'm sure it's getting worse, that for every 100 makers, there were about 140 takers. That's not sustainable. Hence, look at the problem California's in. Right? And, and the rest of the nation is going that direction. We're in trouble economically. Everybody wants to be a taker. There used to be a strong work ethic that characterized America, and we've lost that. Paul is saying in the church, folks, we need to be an example of this. We need to have a strong work ethic. We need to be responsible citizens. We need to serve the Lord in the church. We need to be busy about His agenda, serving Him, not being a taker in the church, not being a taker in society. We're to lead quiet, productive lives. And then, after giving these commands, he gives some results of this. Uh, notice what all he says here. In verse 12. So that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. When you obey these charges that Paul gives here, you adorn the gospel. Being a busybody and gossiping and being lazy doesn't adorn the gospel. All, all we do is give unbelievers an excuse to say, why do I need the church? I'm just as good as those people. Right? But if they see somebody who is obeying what Paul's seen, saying here, they see a difference in that Christian's life. You don't, you don't adorn the gospel if you're lazy. What if your car is a perpetual pig pen? Your car always looks like you live in a swamp when you don't. That doesn't adorn the gospel. What if your home is the home on your street in your neighborhood that all your neighbors are embarrassed by? And they have company over and they say, see that house over there? They never cut their grass you know, the shutters are halfway fallen off and that doesn't give a good testimony. 
What if you're constantly bumming money off of family and friends because you won't work or won't cut expenses, you whatever. You're bum, you're taker. That's not a good testimony for Christians to be in, right? Paul says we need to work so that we'll lack nothing and not be dependent on those in church. I remember a number of years ago, we had a young couple join us here. Uh, very fine young couple, hard workers. And uh, they got very involved. Uh, most of you wouldn't remember them. They've been gone quite a long time. But she was from a really wealthy family, by their own testimony, wealthy family in Texas. And uh, they actually moved into the neighborhood down the street from us where we used to live in our old neighborhood. And through no fault of their own, because he was the last in hired at his work in, in the 2008 economic downturn. Last in, first to go. Right? He lost his job. Well, some time went by and uh, her mom emailed me and wanted to know what the church was going to do for them to pay their bills and keep them up. And they had told me that her family were very wealthy but very dedicated Christians too. And I had a very good correspondence going with the lady and assured her that we loved her daughter and son-in-law and Pitts was a church known to take care of its own. And, but also brought up some passages in 1 Timothy about you know, how families are to help, help their own if they can. The families that can take care of your own. If you don't take care of your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And, and you're to free up the church to be able to help those who really don't have anybody. And she was like, what are those passages? I mean, to her credit, she was very responsive. And she contacted me back. Pastor, you're right. Those, those passages, my husband and I, we can take care of them. I'll, if we ever need, if if we need y'all to do something for them in the future, I won't hesitate to call you. But you're right. We need it. We have the means to take care of. We'll take care of them right now. A very good response. But that's what the scriptures say, isn't it? Uh, I thought, wow, wow, that's a neat response. She wasn't defensive. She wasn't angry or whatever, you know. Paul is saying here, be responsible. You know, live a quiet life, be industrious, love one another, abound more and more, lead a quiet life as we directed you so that you can behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. Be responsible. It used to bug the dickens out of me at my previous church where I was the associate pastor and the administrator. Um, we were sort of known as the money church in town and one of them. And it, it was a well-to-do congregation. 
and uh, we'd have a lot of traffic coming for help. And I'd, I'd watch some guy pull up with his wife, little kids and babies in the car. And he'd help her get the kids out of the car. And he'd plop back down in the car himself and he'd send her in. Toting babies, toting little infant, toddlers walking. And she'd come in needing something. We, we did help a lot of people. I got so tired of seeing this. I said, who's that in the car out there? Ah, uh, that's my husband. Well, you know what he's doing, don't you? Sympathy factor, sending his wife in, using her with their little babies to come in and get money. I said, go get him. When he comes in, then I'll talk. You know, you want to say, you bum. <laughs> Using your wife and kids that way, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You ought to be embarrassed. I, I, don't, I don't think I... I may have told one or, one or two of them that. I'm surprised I didn't get punched. I mean, I was nice, but I was pretty blunt with them how they sent their wife in. Dude, you're supposed to be the head of the household. Come on. That used to bug me to see that, though. Now again, don't misunderstand. The church is to help those who are unfortunate. Families, widows, kids who don't have anybody. We're, we're to help. By the way, in the ancient, in the early church, they had to do that more and more because ancient society didn't have the social security nets that we have today. It was very important for the churches to help those members and their members and members of the community who were who were destitute. But Paul is saying to the church here, you be responsible. In fact, he's even going to say later on to the Thessalonians, if a man won't work, neither will he eat. Yep. No one in the church is to say, you know, I'm a Christian, I belong to that church, so I'm just going to continue relying on them. I, I'm gonna I'm just gonna stay at home, not work, and I'll keep calling them every month when I've got bills to come in. They've got a benevolent committee. No. You need to contribute so that you can be productive and help others. You're to seek to be a giver and not a taker. Spiritually and in your life in general. And, and notice the work ethic that he's promoting here is motivated specifically by two things. So that you'll be a testimony to outsiders and gain their respect and so that you won't have to live a life dependent upon others. You'll notice my closing comments that I've given you there. It's amazing the amount of personal responsibility the Bible puts on us. And there's a lot of people in America that need to really get a hold of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're to be sanctified, we're to love, we're to work, we're to be pure. 
In summary, we are to live Christian lives that are a contribution to the body of Christ. There may come a day that we can't make a contribution of ourselves or our resources. A legitimate day of need might come in your life or in my life. Who knows the circumstances that could happen any time to any of us to where we truly are in need. But in the meantime, we're to be givers, not takers. And again, Paul's not just talking about finances here. In everything about our life, serving others, you know, taking care of our family, we're, we're to be givers. We're to, we're, to, we're to live our lives and conduct our stewardship in such a way that we can be in a position to help others in need. You know, we're not to make a dollar and spend $5 for every dollar. Credit card debt in America, too, is now... I, I heard the other day, the average family... If I remember correctly, the average family is carrying $47,000 in credit card debt. Credit card debt. Credit card debt. Making a dollar and spending five. We're to conduct ourselves in such a way that we can help. Right? Okay. Any closing thoughts you have? Finishing up kind of early with this section tonight. Pastor, just the, the generations before us, I, I, would, I would say that most of us in this class tonight have heard Either our parents or our grandparents say that idle hands are a devil's work. Yep. All our life we grew up hearing that. Yep. And they lived. Oh, they lived it. They worked. They lived, yes. They didn't just say it. And very responsible financially. Uh, if you don't, can't pay for it, don't yeah. buy it. You know, it's even been it's even been traced. I wish I had the research in front of me. I've I've had it in another message, but families back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, a couple would raise three or four children in a 12 or 1300 square foot home. You know, a couple now with one child might live in a 5,000 square foot home. Literally. And the older generations, they were satisfied to drive a Ford or a Chevy. People now want to drive a BMW or Mercedes or whatever. Again, if, if people have that it's, and they can make sense of it financially, stewardship-wise, I'm not knocking that. I'm not knocking people who who have can afford those things. Great. You know. Make sure you also can help others in need. But I'm just saying it, it it has been traced when you look at what sociologists say about how couples used to raise their kids in the neighborhoods, the houses they were in, the cars they drove, and how now you you can see a big time increase in materialism that has come into American society big time. 
And it's, it's sad that we've gotten ourselves in this, this shape that, that we have. But what's Tom Brokaw say about that generation? They were the what? The greatest generation. Yeah. Um, there's Christian orders and there's non-Christian orders. And it's so sad when there's a Christian order because it ruins their testimony of one lady from up north. It was, it was so bad. It was like on TV, even if you could imagine worse, where the place could be condemned. But she had a, inherited this from her parents, a house. The house got destroyed from her uh, hoarding. And and then she moved to another place and got thrown out of there. And we trying to help her as a church, you know, trying to. Mm -hmm. and, and then she was going into uh, uh, Dr. Dr. James' uh, house, and uh, her brother, Dr. James' brother, wasn't saved, and he owned a, like a whole hotel, right? So I said to the pastor's wife, I says, you know, maybe we ought to tell him. We ought to tell Jane. Uh, we we ought to tell her uh, what she's in for. If if this lady moves into her brother's hotel, and pastor's wife says, oh, Jane's a big girl. She just don't worry. Well, <laughs> she ruined that. I almost had the whole hotel in them. That's how good it was. I had these fellows come in with these, you know. Hazmat suits on. Critters running around it. And so many times, you know, and not only that's the, the place where she lived, but the car was still to the ceiling. But where she worked. Everybody loved her because they didn't know what was going on. But it was it was such a she would say, Pray for my brother and my brother's her brother was unsafe and it was like and her brother actually confessed to us and she said, she, she's a Christian, she's my sister. I want no part of it. Yeah. And and it was such a bad testimony, you know, it was so hard. So she was a taker, a taker. I don't can't understand it. They say it's medical, but I don't know. And then we we said, this guy's gotta throw out, this guy's gotta throw up. She'd start crying and crying. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Sad. What could what she could have done was amazing what, what she was given. She had a good job. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kathy? Um, we came across this word recently in Sunday school, and it's a Hebrew word. I don't know Hebrew. But the word is A-B-O-D-A-H, a bodach. Okay. okay. Sometimes it's translated as worship in the Old Testament. Okay. The same word is sometimes translated as work. Okay. So our work is part of our worship. Part of our worship. Yeah. Everything we do is worship. It might not be the kind of worship God deserves or that we intend to give, mm -hmm. but everything we do is worship in some way. Sure. And Paul sort of sums it up in the New Testament, Colossians 3.17. 
Everything you do, in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. That's what I thought I was talking about. Yeah, all of life is to be an offering to the Lord. We kind of like to compartmentalize our lives. Sunday morning, I'll, I'll give to the Lord. If it doesn't go past, if it doesn't go past 12 noon, I'll give to the Lord. But then the rest of this day or the rest of the week's mine. You know, we compartmentalize everything. All of life is to be lived under the Lordship of Christ.